This morning, Pastor Dave is continuing his teaching through the book of 1 Timothy, moving into chapter 3. I will be reading today's selection, which is chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through the end. Please follow along as we read God's Word together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This ends the reading of God's Word. In the Wojnicki family, one of our pastimes, one of the things that we enjoy doing, and I'm sure many of your families uh, enjoy, is we like playing board games, and uh, typically we try and put all the pieces away when we're done playing a board game, but sometimes pieces get left out. I'm sure you've probably had that experience, and hopefully you haven't stepped on uh, one, of, one of those pieces, but, but our girls, they do a, typically a pretty good job at, at putting all the pieces away. I brought some of the different pieces of the games uh, that we play today. Some of them might be familiar to you, others maybe not so much. Um, but, uh, for instance, let's go with uh, an obvious one. Every so often, uh, my youngest uh, likes to play me in chess. Uh, that's fun for me because I'm horrible at chess, but I can beat her. Uh, so this is a, a chess piece <laughs> right, right there. She thinks I'm a genius. Um, I have another nephew that could beat me in three moves. Um, so, you know, we play chess, and then this is a Stratego piece. I don't know if you ever played Stratego, a uh, fun little, little game here. Settlers of Catan, you know, or Catan, depending upon your pronunciation. Uh, this is a little board piece that goes with it. There's, there's a road, and uh, here's another little village thing that you, that you build. And then the infamous uh, Candyland game. My wife refuses to play Candyland for reasons that are only known to her. But uh, she, uh, this little Candyland guy waving high there. And then the Monopoly piece. And, uh, you know, in our family... We're a little competitive. In the extended family, my wife and my brother-in-law have to play on the same team because of how competitive they are. Uh, when I first started dating, they were on opposite teams, and I quickly realized that if I wanted to marry her, uh, that uh, I'd have to keep them together. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. So, so we play these games, and, and we have these pieces, and we're familiar with them. But what if you came across one of these pieces by themselves? And what if you came across the board that went with one of these pieces, but you didn't have the instructions for them? Like, you'd see the piece and you'd think, I know that has something to do with this game. But it's necessary to have the instructions for the game as to how the pieces are to be used. It's one thing to recognize the piece. It's another thing to know how they are to be used in the game. 
And I share this because in our passage this morning that we read here in 1 Timothy, Paul's been writing to the church, and then he comes and he gives instructions, or I should say he actually lays out qualifications for these two components within the church, these two roles within the church. He talks about overseers and deacons. And you come to a passage like this, and you read about overseers and deacons, and if you don't understand the larger context of the church, then when you come to this, it's kind of like coming to a, to a piece in a board game, but having no idea where that piece goes or what it is actually for. So what we're going to do today to make the most of our passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is we're going to take a step back. We're going to pull back a little bit, and we're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about how God views the church. We're going to talk about the design of the church, because if we do that, we're going to begin to understand just how important Paul's instructions on the qualifications for overseers and deacons is. In fact, I believe that you will leave this morning, if you allow the Word of God to, to just minister to you, you will leave this morning with a deeper appreciation for and an understanding of the importance of the church in your life as a believer and its significance in the eyes of God. And so to do this, here's where we're going to start. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And it's crazy that we're going to Ephesians chapter 3 because in Ephesians chapter 3, what we discover here is a passage that's written to the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, I told you, Timothy, to whom our letter is written, was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So the book of 1 Timothy was written to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus as a whole. And listen to what he says. When you come to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8, you're going to discover this one very simple yet profound truth. I want to give it to you, and then we'll see it. God created the church, universal and local. Paul is going to come, and he going to set forth for us that God created the church. It's not a man-made institution. It's a God-ordained one, and he created it universal and local, and I'll explain what I mean by that. In verse 8 of chapter 3, we read Paul saying these words, to me, though, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's to the non-Jews. And, listen, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So I'm to preach to the Gentile and I am to make known the plan of God hidden for ages. And what is the plan of God that's been hidden for ages? He says it right here in verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stop there. Do you hear what Paul is coming and saying in these verses? He is saying that the church is something that has been created by God, part of his eternal plan. And it was designed and created for a purpose and a mission to make known, to reveal to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the work of Jesus Christ. God not only created the church, but he gave it the mission to make Christ Known. It's why we as a church say that our mission is simple. We exist to glorify God. We were made by him and for him. So we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples. Valley Center Community Church. Here's this passage and says this is why we were put here. To make known what has been hidden for ages, the plan of God that is now on full display in Jesus Christ to redeem humanity to himself. The church wasn't created by man. 
Today, the argument is often made, people look at the church and they view it as like a man-made institution, something that, that human beings came up with to develop a power structure over people. There's no doubt that power at, at times within the church has been abused, but we must disabuse ourselves of the notion that the church is something that man came up with. God says, before time began, I had created my church to fulfill this purpose. It was not an afterthought. And the reason why Paul says these words is because Jesus said it first. When you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, 18, there's this very famous passage, and often it is kind of misunderstood or made a little bit more complicated, but Jesus simply comes and he speaks to Peter and he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there are two significant things here. First off, I think this is a lot simpler to understand. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And when he says, upon you, Peter, I will build this church, Peter's name means rock. And I think what Jesus is saying is, upon the apostles and upon the commission I am giving to you, I will build my church. And sure enough, that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. The church explodes as the gospel goes out. And so Jesus says, I will build my church. The church is mine. It's my creation. That's why Paul says it later. But then look at that last part. Remember how he said the church has a mission to go into the world? That's why we believe we go into the world being and making disciples of Jesus. Because it says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why do people build gates, folks? To keep people out. That's why. And so whose gates will not be able to stand against the church? Hell's gates. The church is such a power and a force in the world that even hell itself will not hinder God's plan and purpose to redeem and to save those whom he has chosen to do so. Isn't that spectacular? You are part of something when you are part of a church that is created by God, given a very clear mission in the world, and not only has it been given a mission, but it can guarantee that its mission will succeed. And so no matter how dark the days get, no matter how great the persecution of the church is, nothing will stop it. Praise God for that. Amen? That's exciting. You can see things happening and things might get dark. But the light of Christ proclaimed through his church will never be extinguished. God created the church. And he created it, we say, both universal and local. And what I mean by that is this. There is one church of God, the universal church, but many manifestations of it here on earth, the local church. So you see, the church is referred to from two different perspectives in the scripture. It is referred to in these broader contexts like we see here when Jesus says, I will build my church. Or in the Ephesians context, talking about the church as a whole. And it's talking about all true believers throughout time who are part of the family of God. That's the church universal. There is one true church of God. But make no mistake, God's word is abundantly clear that local churches like ours or Grace Point or Ridgeview or the churches down the hill are viewed by God as local manifestations of the universal church in specific locations. And so when God looks at Valley Center Community Church, he's not making a distinction there between the church universal and the church local. Like he looks upon the church and he considers the church in specific times and places to be manifestations of his household. And we know that because we'll look at our text this morning. We already looked at it. You're going to get so familiar with this verse, you're, you're going to get tired of it, but I don't want you to. He says it here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is writing to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he's not saying, you know, well, universal church, local church. No, he's saying, listen, 
Timothy and all those who are part of the church in Ephesus, you are to view yourselves in that location as a representation of the household of God. And so when you look throughout the rest of the New Testament letters, Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, to this church in Rome. Peter's writing to the church of the dispersia. Like, the idea is, in the eyes of God, he, he views the local church made up of believers as the manifestation and the reality in that place of his church universal. When Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne, okay, not the second, when Queen Elizabeth I was on, her, on the throne in the 1500s, she was trying to help her kingdom do better with the units of weight and measurement. Because people were using weights and measurement, obviously, in their trades. And she didn't want her people getting ripped off by one another. And so one of the things that she did, one of the things she established was this beauty right up here. I want to show you. This was a yardstick called the X, <laughs> literally the X checker, okay? It was a yardstick made by Queen Elizabeth I. I don't think she made it personally. I don't know that she was that good with it. But, yeah, but she had somebody make this yardstick, and then it went out into all the provinces of her kingdom, and they said, I want you to copy this yardstick in your province. And so when people are having questions about the length of, of something within a trade, you're to use this as the measurement. Now, after that was passed around and a copy was made of it and it was left there in that province, somebody couldn't come back as they were saying, well, let's see, I want, you know, two yards of that thing. They couldn't come and say, well, that's not the queen's yardstick. It's just a copy. It doesn't matter. No. The queen had established that the copies that were made of it were to serve the people in that place as the actual thing, although the main one was eventually brought back to her kingdom. It actually survived and was still used until 1843. That was the standard. Friends, when you think about the local church, and we talk about the local church being a manifestation of the universal church in specific locations, when we look at the church, we must have the, the view of it, the way that God sees it. I created it, I established it, and in those locations, I want you to think about it as I think about it. And here's why we need to be so clear upon this. Because God's word not just tells us that the church was created by him, but the scriptures also come and tell us very clearly how God thinks about the church, how God views the church. Turn back to Ephesians again. We're going to go over one chapter to, to chapter 5. I want to see with you the view that our God in heaven sees what God thinks about when he thinks about Valley Center Community Church. He says, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see in that text how God views the church? How he thinks about his church? You can't read that passage and not discover this one simple truth. God loves the church. He loves his church. He loves us individually. We see that in other scriptures, no doubt. Like, he loves you. He sent Christ to die for you. He, he loves us individually. But, but do not think that Christianity is, a, is an individualistic religion, that it's an individualistic faith. He loves his church. He died to redeem her, to save her, to rescue people to himself, to form his church. He gave his life. You want to know how much he loves it, he was willing to die for it. The extent of his sacrifice was immense. And then look at it. It's not just that he saved it, 
through the work that he did. Look how he cares for her, cleanses her, washes over her with the word to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is, this is language that informs that he is somebody who cares. He doesn't just sacrifice for it, but, but he cares tenderly for his church. And you begin to understand why he cares so much for his church when you jump down just a few verses to verse 29. In verse 29, he's continuing talking about God's relationship to his church. And he says in verse 29, For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his what? Body. Now here is where things get really incredible. The church is not just some entity out there that he loves and he cares for. He loves and he cares for his church because he sees the church as an extension of himself. He considers the church part of his very own body. This is why he has such love and care for it, because he loves and he cares for himself. When he sees the church, he's saying, you are a part of me. You are connected to me. So why Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth and he writes to the church in Rome, and he talks about being members of the body of Christ, you, if you are in Jesus Christ, have been adopted into his family, but more than that, you are part of his very body, an extension of of Jesus himself. In Acts chapter 9, we see the depth to which Jesus intimately identifies with the church. You see, God intimately identifies with the church. And in Acts chapter 9, here's what he says. The story is, Paul, whose name at this point is Saul, has been persecuting the church of God. And Paul is on his road from Jerusalem to Damascus to bring harm to the church, to throw people in jail, to break apart Christian families, and to try and destroy God's people. And on his way, you might know the story, a light hits him and he falls to the ground. In chapter 9, verse 4, it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Think about what's being said here for a moment. Jesus at this time and place, if you know, he has died, he has risen from the dead, and ascended back into heaven. Yet he is saying in this passage that Paul is specifically causing him harm. He's persecuting Jesus, yet Jesus wasn't there physically on earth. Why does Jesus view what Paul is doing as persecution of Jesus himself? Because as we already saw, Jesus considers the members of his church as part of his very own body. And so Jesus is telling us here this profound truth. He's saying that what you say and what you do to my church, you are doing directly to me. So what you say and what you do, how you treat and how you act towards the people of God, you are doing directly towards Jesus. Here's the truth. God identifies intimately with the church. So much so that he says it's his body. Have you considered that? The profound nature of this thing called the church, universal and local, God sees it as his household. God sees it as part of himself. It's an extension of who he is. And so how we treat the church, what we say about the church, we are saying about Jesus. Whether we know it or not, now we know it. The church is his body. And see, when you have someone that you love, I mean, when you, when you really, really love them, 
Don't you find yourself desiring to, to seek the love, the things that they love, to care about the things that they care about? I mean, when, you, when you're in love with somebody, you're like, oh, you like those things? I, I want to like those things too. In a marriage relationship, the two become, become one. And so when we think about what we've just heard, the question comes to us, do I love Jesus? I mean, do, do I really love him? Do I see and understand him to be the beautiful and awesome savior of my soul, the one who died for me and redeemed me from the pit and brought me into his presence and into his family? Like if you know that about Jesus and you really, really love him for who he is and what he's done as the savior of your soul, then you have to ask yourself the question, but do I love the things that he loves? I say that I love him, but do I love what he loves? If God loves and cares about the church, we should love and care about it too because it's an extension of him. You can't separate the two. I love him and I want to love what he loves. But because it's an extension of Jesus Christ's own body, this means that if you love Jesus, you have to love and care about the church. Universal and local, if you do not care and love his church, you cannot say that you really love him because he is his church and the church is him. They're connected together. This is what we have seen in the text. And too often, we separate the church from Christ. And he says, you can't do that. It's it's my body that I purchased with my blood. I love it. I care for it. It would be like saying, I love Jesus, but I don't love and care for the church. Would be like me coming to you and saying, you know, I really love my wife, Hannah. Really love her. But I don't love her personality or the way she looks. <laughs> You'd look at me and you're like, do not ever say that out loud again, number one. Number two, you're an idiot, okay, right? You would say, how can you say you love Hannah, but you don't love her personality or the way that she looks when those two things are what make up who she is? I love Hannah, but I don't love the way she thinks or the way she looks or her personality. What are you... Those things are tied together in the same way God's word calls us to say, do you see the church the way that God sees the church as part of who he is, that he loves and he cares for it? Do you value the church the way that he values it? We talk about the church in this way because I really think that for most Christians, there is a disconnect between how we think about Christ and what he's done for us and then how he's joined us to his body through the church. No one hates their own flesh but gives themselves up for it. That's what Jesus has done for his church. So do you love it in that way? Do you see it as, as precious and valuable as Jesus sees it? When you begin to see how greatly Jesus values it and cares for it and loves it, you begin to understand this next truth. That because our God is a God of order, because he cares deeply for the things he creates, God designed the church to function in a specific way. And it's not just that he created the church, he loves the church and he cares for the church. We discover in his word that God has a very specific design for how his church is to function. He has created an order in a structure in this thing that he loves so much. And so when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, as he's talking about elders and he's talking about deacons, what you're beginning to see is some of that order and that structure in the church. It's why when you come down to verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, in the passage we read this morning, you see why he says, listen, I am writing these things to you so you would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Just as the church is not a man-made institution, so too we do not come with our own way of thinking about how the church functions, how the church is ultimately designed to be. 
God spells it out for us in his word. And the very first thing his word tells us about the function of the church, how it's supposed to work in a very specific way, is this truth. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Amen? Jesus Christ is the one who is over his church. It is the church's ultimate authority. Every local church submits to Jesus Christ and to his word. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. Man, I wish we could really dive into the entire chapter. We don't have time. But in verse 17, he says of Jesus, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. What is the body? The church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. When you think about this thing called the church and you think about its structure and how it's supposed to function, ultimately Jesus, Jesus Christ who gave his life for the church, Jesus Christ of which the church is his body, Jesus is its head. That means he's the ultimate authority. He is the one to whom we look how to live, what he calls us to. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 says this, God put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church. We take great comfort in knowing that at the end of the day, one of the reasons why the gates of hell cannot withstand the onslaught of the church is because do you know who the one is who leads the church? You know who the one is that goes before us as the church? It is our head. It is Jesus Christ. It's why he said to the disciples, all authority in earth, heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always. Why is he with us always? Because he's the head of the church. He is over us and he is with us. Now, where that leaves us is at this question, which is, well, if Jesus is the head of the church, if he's the one with all the authority, and if his word has been given to us to lead and guide us. And by the way, often as we're, I'm preaching the word, I'll say, well, in Ephesians, Paul says this, and 1 Peter, Peter says this, or in John, John says this. Listen, the ultimate author, the ultimate one who is speaking through Peter, through John, through Paul is God himself. It's his word. And while he's the ultimate authority and he speaks to us, some people would say, well, then there's not supposed to be any kind of other leadership in the church. Jesus is our head. Like, we're all equals in the church. We're part of his body. And I say, yes, we are all equal. Every believer in Jesus Christ is an equal member of the body, no matter what part we play. But God speaks to us in his word. And he says very clearly that there is to be earthly leadership of his church. Representations of the great shepherd within local churches. And we see this. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. You can't understand what Paul says in 1 Timothy unless you understand these greater categories in this context of what the church is and how it's to function. In 1 Peter 5 verse 1, Peter writing to the church says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, being examples to the flock. Now stop there for a minute. He's coming and he's saying that, listen, there are to be men within the church who are called to ultimately give oversight and care for the flock, to care for the church. And then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. Peter acknowledges it. He's the one who's the head over the church. And yet, within the church, there should be those who serve as Christ's representative to shepherd and to care for the flock. And so this is why we come and we say every church, according to God's word, is to have elders, leaders, who in submission to Jesus Christ oversee the church. This is God's design. This is his function. Jesus is the head, but that does not negate that 
God comes elsewhere and says, with Jesus as the head, the chief shepherd, there should be under shepherds who watch over and care for the flock. I don't have time to get into it this morning. It's going to be part of the message next week when we look at what Paul says about elders. But there's a context for how we are to care for and to watch over the people of God. And part of that is teaching the word of God. And then as he even says here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 5, he says, listen, an elder qualification is that you can manage your own household because if you can't manage your own household, how can you care for God's family? So part of what it means to be an elder in the church is to care for and to shepherd the people of God. And this isn't an option for the church. The church absolutely needs this because, number one, God commands his people to appoint elders to do this. But look at what Paul says to Titus in Titus 1.5. Paul makes it abundantly clear. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now look at this for a minute. Paul comes to Titus and he says, I left you in Crete, which is a large island there. It's now part of Greece. So that you might put into order. So the church needs order. It needs structure. And how is that fulfilled? And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It is a necessary thing for the church Local churches to have elders. Paul is saying, without it, there's this disorder that God has not designed, but part of God's design is that his church would have men that would serve in this role and to oversee the flock. When you come to Acts 14, 23, he says the same thing. As they traveled throughout all the cities, it says that they appointed elders for them in some of the churches. Is that what it says? No, it says that they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. God's church is to function in a specific way. Christ is the head. Those who then serve under Christ to shepherd the flock, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to guard and protect against false doctrine. Does this make elders greater than other members of the body? No. It just means they have a different role within the body. Yet it's necessary. It's part of his design. He cares so much for the church that he wants qualified men to serve in this way, to, to reflect Christ and to lead the church in that way. And so that's what we see here in 1 Timothy 3. That's who these overseers are. That's an interchangeable word between overseer, elders, and pastors. It's used interchangeably in the scriptures. But is that all there is for the church to have? No, there's two more things that must be a part of God's design for the church. The second is deacons. We see this in the text. There are these people called deacons who are mentioned. And, and who are they? Well, every church is to have deacons who serve, allowing for elders to fulfill their roles. The word deacon literally means servant, to serve. <laughs> and so that's who these individuals are. We see them first come on the scene in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6. The first apostles are working it with the church in Jerusalem. They're trying to shepherd the people there. They're trying to teach, to instruct, and to care. And there's all these physical needs that are rising up within the church. And so the elders are like, if we devote ourselves to caring for the physical needs of the church, what's going to happen is we're not going to be able to preach and teach and care for the flock as God would have us. And so they appointed deacons who would ultimately care for those physical needs. And so what Paul is alluding to here with elders and deacons ultimately in First Timothy, he's saying this is who the church needs. It needs those who will serve alongside the elders. It's not a it's not a leadership position in the sense of giving oversight. That's not what they do. It's not that they're called to teach and to preach. They're called to serve. One person said it best this way. Elders are to be servant leaders because we serve Jesus Christ and we lead the flock. We're servant leaders. Deacons are leader servants. They're people who stand up in the midst of the congregation and take on this role to lead others in service. The deacons aren't the only ones, who are, the only ones in the church who are supposed to serve but they're to lead others into it. This is how God designed the church to function. 
He designed it in a very specific way because he knows what is best for his church. And there's this great little verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where we read this, where, where Paul actually kind of pulls this all together. He sends his greetings to the church in Philippi, and here's what he says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And then he says, with what? The overseers and deacons. Paul is anticipating that in the church in Philippi, you're going to have the saints of God gathered together, right? It's going to be a local manifestation of Christ's household. And that that household is going to have overseers and it's going to have deacons. And so God has designed his church to function in this way, but it leaves one final point to be made. And this might be one of the most significant of them all, which is if you have elders and you have deacons, what about all the other saints? What about you and I who might not be serving in a role of an elder and a deacon? If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, how am I to, to think about my place within the body? Do I have a responsibility in order for the church to function rightly. And sure enough, God's word is expressly clear that indeed you and I do. And here's where I need to say that God's word says every Christian is to identify with a local church, serving the church, and coming under the care of its leaders. For the church to function rightly, Jesus must be the head, elders must shepherd, deacons must serve. But every Christian, if you proclaim to be a follower of Christ, you must identify with a local church. And what does that mean? It means that there is a local church whom you serve with your gifts in accordance with 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, which says that we are all members of the body of Jesus Christ. You are members of the body, not just purely universally, but Paul is writing specifically to the church in Rome and specifically to the church in Corinth. And when he writes to them, he says, you are members of the church in Corinth. You're members of the church in Rome and you have been gifted to use your gifts to serve this body. And the body can't function if you are not serving that church. So what, what it means to identify with the church is that you are serving with your gifts. You can't call yourself a Christian and say, I'm not a part of a local church in which I'm serving with my gifts. Let me just put it as plainly as I can. Like, that might seem harsh, but it's biblical. Christians are people who serve the local church. And that doesn't mean you're volunteering at children's ministries on Sunday morning. It doesn't mean that you're greeting. All of those things are absolutely important. It means that you're doing those things, but you're also just serving day to day one another. We serve with our gifts. But then this point is so important. To identify with the local church means you must come under the leadership of that local church. You see, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. As clear as day, God has designed that for you and for me, there would be those who are what? Over you. And your response to that is that you would respect them as they are over you. And who are the ones who are over you? We just read 1 Peter. It's the elders of the church. And so if you are going to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you must recognize that there are certain individuals that God has called you to place yourself under, to come under their care. But if this was not clear enough, God wrote in Hebrews 13, 17, these words, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. He's not talking about governmental leaders. He's not talking about bosses. He's talking about leaders in the church because they are those who are keeping watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God isn't laying forth here a principle and a suggestion. 
He is commanding the Christian to identify with leaders of a local church who are called to shepherd and watch over them. To be a Christian, let me phrase it this way, to be an obedient Christian is to follow what God commands here and say, have I identified myself with a specific group of leaders in a local church who will take watch over my soul? Because that's what God's word calls you to. He is saying very clearly, you can't be walking in obedience to the word of God if you are not a part of a local church in which you are coming under the leaders of that local church. If you haven't identified yourself with them, if you have not come under their care, are, are you tracking with me here? This isn't an optional thing. This is God making it as, as plain as day that the way the church functions is with Jesus as the head, with those who shepherd under Jesus, the flock of God, who have individuals who serve the church and its physical needs, and that everyone who calls upon the name of Christ identifies with local leaders who they submit to their care. You can't say, I'm good, I shepherd my own soul according to the word of God. Because it literally says, you are not responsible alone for the shepherding of your soul. You must obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul. Some people have asked me, more than one person over time, why does Valley Center Community Church have like formal membership? Like why do you have a process of membership? Why do we have members at Valley Center Community Church? The answer is really simple. Because we want to help people be obedient to the word of God. To actually have a very clear way of saying, I have done what God has called me to do. Our membership process here at Valley Center Community Church is the way in which we as elders say, we want to shepherd the flock of God that he has entrusted to us. But how do we know who he has entrusted to us? We don't just pick and choose who we are called to ultimately shepherd because God says, oh, the people you are called to shepherd will identify themselves with you. They will let you know that, that you are their leader. See, I can't know who God has called me to shepherd if the person hasn't come to me and says, I identify you as the one who you are called to shepherd. If someone doesn't come and say that, you see, somebody can attend on Sunday mornings. They can even potentially try and serve in some ways within the church. They can even give financially to the church. But the way in which we as leadership are only able to truly shepherd the flock is to know like, well, do you consider me your elder? Because with that comes my care, with that comes my teaching, with that comes ultimately, as we'll also see next week, my rebuke and correction and church discipline if needed. But if somebody doesn't identify with the local church, if they don't come to the leadership, if they don't say, I identify you as the one whom God has entrusted to care for me, then that exchange hasn't taken place. And sometimes, if I can be so bold, I've had people come and they've said to us, they've said, well, you know, I want to identify with you as, as my leaders. But I don't want to go through the membership process. I don't want to sit down with an elder and share my testimony. And I don't want to be presented before the church. To which I think to myself, let's see. God's word says that when you identify with somebody as your shepherd, you come under their leadership and you look to submit and obey to the way that they look to lead you. And if somebody comes to me and says, I want to be a member, but I don't want to do the process that you guys have asked me to do, are you tracking with me on the logic of that? They've literally said from the outset of our relationship, but there are certain things that I don't care to follow when you give me instruction on. And, and, and so it's like we have to have a means. God has called us to shepherd the flock. We're never going to do it absolutely perfectly because there's only one great shepherd. But when we lay out our membership process here at Valley Center Community Church, look, I don't want you to become members because I'm trying to raise the number of members of Valley Center Community Church. Like, there's, there's nothing about that, that that is impressive to me. I love the people of God enough 
we as elders love the people of God enough to say, like, this is important. We want, I just, I want people to walk in obedience. I want to make it as easy as possible for them to walk in obedience. So I want them to understand as clearly as I can what it means for them to walk in obedience because that's what God calls me to do. I'm not looking to increase our membership. I'm not looking to increase our roles for the praise of my name or anybody else's. It's simply because when I see what God's word clearly teaches, we want to help people walk in that as we would in any other way. Because this is how God has designed his church to ultimately function. I love the church of God because Christ died for it, gave his life for it, considers it an extension of himself. And you and I, when we are brought into that family, are not brought into something which God has not made clear as to how it is to function but has given us all that we need to see not just the church itself, but us as members of the church thrive in the life that he has for us. My prayer is that we would look to embrace God's design, that we would so see the church as God sees it, that we would place a value and an importance on it that God does. Because I'm telling you, when we as the people of God Love as Christ has loved us. One of the beautiful things that happens is that no one in the church is lacking, but every need is being met and every person is being cared for in a way that brings God great glory, which testifies to his gospel in the world and acts as our good in this life. May the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that whether it's the church or whether it's our family or whether it's our neighbors, Lord, you call us to love, to love as you have loved us. And we know, Lord, that we don't always love you perfectly and we don't always love your church as we should, let alone one another. And yet, Lord, when we fail to do this, your forgiveness is there for us and your power is there for us to, to move forward. And to live in that way, and I just, I would ask and pray that you would help us at Valley Center Community Church to have such a vision for this, a vision for your church and for your people, the vision that you have, so that, Father, we would live out your design in the world, and that when the community around us sees the, the church community, they would say, there is something there that's not of this world, and we would say, you're right, what we have comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ who died for each of us and will one day present us in splendor and glory before his throne. And so it's in his name that we pray and we ask. And all God's people said, amen, amen.